So this couple was about to get married, and they were both just extremely uptight because each one had a secret they were trying to keep from the other one. The would-be groom met with his father before the wedding and said, Dad, he said, uh, I don't know how to deal with this, but I have incredibly stinky feet. And I can bathe, I can shower, I can scrub them, but I can't really get rid of the odor. And I'm scared to death that my wife is going to find this out and not want to sleep with me. And I don't know what to do about it. And his dad said, well, son, the only thing I can think about is you're just going to have to sleep in socks every night and put some foot powder in there. And it may not be the most romantic thing in the world, but it should keep the odor away. And the son said, okay, okay, I'll give that a try. Well, the would-be bride met with her mother and said, Mom, said, I don't know what to do about the fact that I have terrible halitosis in the morning. I mean, it could kill small mammals. I really don't know. This, we're talking about some serious dragon breath here, and I don't want first thing every day my husband to be awakened by this awful smell. What do I do about this? And the mom said, well, sweetheart, I hate to tell you this, but you're just going to have to get up before your husband every day and brush your teeth before he gets up. She said, all right, I'll do it. And for six months, these solutions worked perfectly until one night the man wakes up cold, reaches down and finds out one of his socks has fallen off. And he begins to frantically reach around the bed trying to find it. And then his wife sits bolt up, looks him in the face and says, what's wrong? And he says, I think you ate my sock. (laughs) Okay, so that's not the most romantic picture of marriage, granted. But it's far more realistic than the way we usually talk about marriage in church. I was sitting in a booth a couple weeks ago at BJ's Brewhouse talking to Keith. He picked the place. I had nothing to do with it. And... He says, could you, when you come to preach, could you talk about family life? We're kind of building our outreach vision around reaching into the brokenness of families around us, and we need to face the reality of our own brokenness as a family and all of that. Could, could you help us by kind of launching a thing on family? And, I mean, I agreed to do that, but honestly, inside, I was just cringing. Because I don't like to preach about family. I have been asked to speak about family more than any other subject. I preach for 22 years, three different congregations, and it's just constant. The appeal, can you talk about family? Can you talk about family? And and I'm reluctant for a lot of reasons. Number one, I am no expert on family. And I don't want to pretend that I am. I don't have all of the answers. Secondly, because my greatest blunders as a human being and my greatest guilt and fear and sense of inadequacy all revolve around mistakes I've made with my family. When I've been a bad brother and a bad son and a bad father and a bad husband. And these are the things that I obsess about, that I would go back and redo. And then I grew up a preacher's son. And I felt this intense pressure from the church to present this image of perfect family to be the proof in the pudding that my dad was a good spiritual leader and the expectations of the church for us to be role models for all the other kids. I felt like I grew up in the church's private petting zoo. And I still have issues with that. You probably can't tell. Um, 
And finally, for me, it's hard to preach about family because I don't like to hurt people. And you cannot preach about family without touching people's pains. And people who come from very difficult family situations, and there are a lot of them, just cringe inside at the news. We're going to be talking about family. Oh, and I'm going to feel guilty, and I'm going to feel inadequate, and I don't like to hurt people. I don't like to talk about difficult things, really. But primarily, all those reasons aside, I struggle as a preacher to talk about family because the Bible, frankly, just doesn't talk about family issues very directly very often. At least not the kind of questions that we come to Scripture looking for answers to. It doesn't talk about family that way. It doesn't ask the family counseling questions. There's no section of Scripture that talks about how to have dynamic communication in your marriage. There's no place to turn to in Scripture that talks about how you raise a high-achieving, well-adjusted, spiritually healthy adolescent. There's, There's just nothing about that, really. Now, the Bible does talk about family. There is sort of a very brief, scant outline of family in Scripture. It's consistent in the sense that, you know, marriage is held up as a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, and and it's not supposed to be abandoned or violated. And, And marriage is presented as the foundational relationship to family, which is different from a lot of cultures around the world, even a lot of our own. The primary bond is not parent child. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That's not something for parent-child. Parents are routinely encouraged in Scripture to discipline their children and to train them in the ways of the Lord, but we're not really told how other than kind of the image, the symbol of the rod, and that just makes us all nervous today. We are commanded to honor our father and mother. That's in the Ten Commandments, but exactly how that works out in our culture today is kind of different from what it looks like a lot of times in the biblical stories. There's some instructions on submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, husbands loving your wives, wives respecting your husbands. That's there, absolutely. But there's no detailed manual for family life and all the complexities that we work with today. And the Bible presents family and teachings about family in a whole array of family traditions and customs and cultures across hundreds and thousands of years, and it's hard sometimes to separate out the temporary cultural expressions from the permanent principles. For example, am I the only person that gets nervous when Paul starts listing off instructions to family that right after talking to husbands and wives and children, he starts talking slaves and masters? Because in the Greco-Roman world, slaves were part of the family. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what to do about that. And that makes me a little bit nervous. And then there's the whole issue of polygamy. It's all over the Bible. All these great heroes of Scripture, godly men with multiple wives. Now, I think it's not only economically impractical and problematic on a relational sense. I wouldn't recommend it, but I'm telling you, if you're going into an African village or the villages of Papua New Guinea and you're telling somebody that to come to Jesus, they have to divorce three of their wives and abandon and impoverish all of those women's children, they're going to say being a Christian will make you an immoral person. And all of a sudden now it gets really, really complicated, and I don't know what to do with that. 
Now, maybe that isn't our issue, but the point being, the way family is described in the Bible is, well, it's not just 1950s or 60s white middle class cultural traditional family. There's no recipe for an emotionally satisfying marriage. There is no advice on parenting adolescents. Why, we didn't even think about adolescence until the 19th century, 20th century. It wasn't even a concept, much less advice on it. Perhaps that's why most marriage and family material that's promoted in churches today doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from social sciences and research around social sciences. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. And the people who teach that stuff in churches are trying to line it up with Scripture. And I'm all for that, and that's great, and all truth is God's truth, and don't hear me knocking that. I've got a degree in psychology, but I'm telling you, the stuff that's being taught under the guise of marriage and family and churches doesn't come from the Bible primarily. The people who are teaching it grab a few verses here or there and slap it in with their material and say, see, see, it's consistent with Scripture. And once again, I'm not saying that's bad, but that's kind of concerning that most of the stuff doesn't originate in Scripture. It's helpful. Let's use it to strengthen family and fine. But, but most of the marriage and family therapy, marriage family material was not designed or created to extend the kingdom of God and often has almost nothing to do with being a disciple of Jesus, at least not directly. But in our great anxiety over family and our culture, and we have had so many cultural and sociological changes over the last hundred years that our families are reeling, And in all of this stuff, the church can get so anxious about family that in trying to overcorrect, we can overemphasize family and get our families all out of place and create more problems than we solve. And if we do that, it's not good for us and it's not good for people we're trying to reach. Now, one of my best friends, one of my mentors is Dr. David Langford, who preaches for the Quaker Avenue Church in Lubbock, Texas. And he has a Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy from Texas Tech. And we've been talking through the years about a lot of things. And one day he was sitting in my living room, we were talking, and he, he said, you know, I think, I, I think we have created an almost idolatrous family cult in church. And he pointed out all of the vast material on families and Christian bookstores and Christian radio and Christian family ministries and the seminars that run just kind of continuously. And and there's been an explosion of counseling services in churches and ministers who have training as psychologists and popularity on the sermons on family, which is the most requested topic. And now today in our culture, in the evangelical churches, conservative, what we think of as Bible serious type churches, traditional family values has now become synonymous with gospel, which is kind of stunning, really. It's almost as if the primary purpose of the church is just an ancillary institution to prop up family and help family. Well, in light of that fascination with family, the Bible has some stunning things to say. For example, in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, When Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who were first will be first and last first. And I want to go, whoa, 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 what are you talking about leaving family for Jesus? What about leaving family for the gospel? What's that, giving them up and realigning your family around the people that you reach for Jesus instead of the people you were raised with? What's that? Or Luke 14, and if this doesn't make you nervous, I don't think you're being honest. 
large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said to them, if anybody's not come to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And I want to go, whoa, 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 wait, Jesus, wait. That's got to be hyperbole or, you know, today we'll call it the hyperbole. Um, But really? You don't mean that. Let's do some Greek word study. That can't mean what it says. Or Matthew 10, 34 through 37, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anybody who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I read that and I go, well, what kind of traditional family values is this? And then I think about the missionaries that we train at MRN and how hard it is for them to get the blessing of their parents to go. Have we forgotten that the gospel is about the reign of God? That the gospel is about recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of our lives and submitting to that entirely and that this surpasses every other goal, including family harmony, as important as that is to all of us? And sometimes I wonder if we've shifted our focus over to family because we have forgotten that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. And we've lost confidence that that message is going to get any traction. And so we're going to shift to what people are interested in. Now, becoming a disciple of Jesus will make you a much better lover of people. Including your spouse and your kids and your parents and your siblings and all of that. And in many ways, it will improve you as a family member. But it starts with Jesus, not family. Perhaps... We're just kind of sharp people, and we've noticed that the place that sin is really breaking people's lives apart most right now is in the family area, and we're just trying to figure out how to contextualize the gospel in that setting and fit that market, and that may be really smart. That may be great mission thinking, and I certainly don't want to oppose it. It's certainly not wrong, but we need to be aware it's dangerous because we can get off message pretty quickly and end up serving a false agenda And here's my real fear. Here's what really gets at me. I'm afraid that if we focus too much on family, we inadvertently leave the impression that the only people who can really be serious followers of Jesus are people who have ideal families. And we just cut off a ton of people who see no hope and say, church isn't for me. I can never fit in. Perhaps, I've seen this said, I can't prove it, I've heard it said by people who study these things that the most unreached people group in America right now are single moms with kids living in apartment complexes. And they walk into church and they don't see people like them and they don't know how to plug into our Bible classes and they just feel like sore thumbs sticking out, getting hurt everywhere And their kids a lot of times don't feel welcome and we don't know what to do with them. But it's not just singles. 
divorced people, people in all kinds of complicated, difficult family situations feel like getting over the hurdle of not living up to the image of the traditional family is just a barrier they can't really overcome and they don't fit in our churches which are designed for intact nuclear families. And all the organization and all the groupings and all the events kind of centered around marriages and traditional families and it can really leave the impression that good disciples of Jesus don't have serious family problems and that all Christian expressions of family look like something from a 1950s or 60s sitcom. And that's just not true. It never has been true. And we create unnecessary barriers to the gospel when we unintentionally create that impression. But lest we forget, there is not one single healthy family system in the entire Bible. There is not one heroic Bible character who did not have family problems. They're all messed up. I don't want to live in any of the families I read about in Scripture. Let's start at the beginning with Adam and Eve, shall we? Now, if perfect parents produce perfect kids, how does the Father of Heaven end up with Adam and Eve? And it isn't very far into the story. They start screwing up and throwing each other under the bus. And then they have a couple of kids, and the first one kills the second one. Now that's going to make for an uncomfortable Thanksgiving. And then it just gets worse and worse until God only finds one righteous family left, Noah and his boys and their wives. And eight people survive the destruction of everything else and everybody else. And eight people come out of the ark. And what's the first thing Noah does? He plants a vineyard, he makes wine, he gets drunk, he's laying around doing something in his tent naked. I don't know, I don't want to know. His son Ham comes in, instead of protecting his father's honor, does something to dishonor him. I don't know, I don't want to know. Noah finds out, curses Ham, and makes his children slaves to his brothers. Well, that's a nice family system for you. Let's talk about Abraham and Sarah, the initial people called to be the mission of God's, the father of the, and mother of the mission of God unto the world. Well, they're infertile for 100 years. That, that makes it tough. And then Sarah gets impatient waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, decides she has a better idea, so she takes her handmaid and says, here, marry and have sex with my uh, servant, and, 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 and we'll help God fulfill his promise. And they create Ishmael, who just becomes a huge problem and a distraction. And the next thing you know, Hagar and Sarah are fussing with each other, and Hagar is getting uppity, and Sarah is saying, you're going to have to send that woman away and her son away particularly after she has Isaac, and now there's fussing and going on between the boys. And God actually endorses a divorce and an abandonment of Hagar and her son. And then to make matters worse, God gets afraid that Abraham loves Isaac so much that it threatens his relationship to God, and God says, kill him on an altar to me. Now, Isaac grows up to have some issues with daddy after that, you know. And, and he marries Rebecca, and he's got some insecurities, and then he's playing favorites with Esau, and Rebecca's playing favorites with Jacob, because after all, favoritism is a family systems trend in this system. And that ends up to 
creating all kinds of friction between Jacob and Esau, and they're fussing and stealing and cheating one another. And Jacob, in particular, steals from Esau, who's not real bright, and ends up lying and deceiving his father and blowing the whole family apart with the complicity of his mother, Rebecca, and this great kind of convoluted scheme that blows apart the family. For 20 years, Jacob has to leave home, and he's not around to bury his parents, and he can't go back home for fear that his brother's going to kill him, so he moves up to stay with his uncle Laban, and for 20 years, they cheat and steal and mistreat one another until he has to flee from his uncle into the face of his brother, so he's between two family members who both want to kill him. Well, while he's up there, his uncle becomes his father-in-law and tricks him into marrying both of his daughters when he only wanted one of them, and then they fuss forever. And he has a whole bunch of children, the oldest of whom is Reuben, who rapes his stepmom. I really don't recommend that. And then you've got Simeon and Levi, the next two, who massacre an entire village after their sister Dinah is raped. And then there's Judah, number four, who has incest with his daughter-in-law Tamar and fathers an illegitimate child. Oh, and not to mention the fact that there's a lot of favoritism in this family too, and the favorite is Joseph. And because of jealousy over Joseph, all the other brothers capture him and sell him into slavery. Do you want to be in this family? Well, let's jump down to Moses. Moses and Zipporah are a mixed-race couple And it causes so much trouble that they can't agree about how to handle the religious training of their children that Zipporah will not circumcise Gershom and God gets so mad about it he almost kills Moses and Zipporah has to circumcise Gershom at the last minute, throw foreskin at Moses' feet and says, there you go, you bridegroom of blood. And then they start leading the people out of Israel and Moses' sister Miriam and brother Aaron despise his foreign-born wife And you got all kinds of problems around that. Aaron, the first high priest, his sons Nadab and Abihu are so wicked and so disrespectful to God in worship, God just strikes them dead in the middle of church. Then you got Samson who marries that pagan Delilah who ends up betraying him and he ends up blind and imprisoned. Eli, the last judge, is so so horrible as a father. His children are so horrible that God takes the priesthood away from him and kills his sons. Samuel, who was raised in that same household but came to love the Lord, watched what happened with Eli, and then he raised boys who were so awful that Israel said, please give us a king, don't let your sons lead us. And then we get to David, the man of God's own heart, who has endless family problems. I mean, the biggie is the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder, conspiracy to commit murder against her husband. But then his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. David doesn't do anything about it, so her full brother Absalom kills Amnon in revenge, ends up being banished by David. Absalom finally comes back when Joab persuades him to, only to mount a coup and depose his father David and throw all of Israel into a civil war. And Absalom ends up being slaughtered. And then when the dust settles, God or David selects Solomon to be the king, but Adonijah wants to be king, and he mounts a a coup attempt, and so Solomon kills his brother Adonijah so he can be king, and then Solomon marries a thousand women who take his heart away from God and plunges Israel into a long cycle of disobedience that leads to their ultimate destruction. I could go on. Even Jesus himself has family issues, if you get past the birth story. 
His father seems to have died to be out of the way. His mother and brothers don't know what in the world he's doing. This doesn't look what they were expecting. They think Jesus is out of his mind. So they get the straitjacket and the Thorazine, and they go over to try to arrest him and get him committed. And when they get there, they can't get in because all the people who are surrounding him, so they send word in saying, tell Jesus his mother and brothers are here. And he said, who are my mother and brothers? I don't know what you're talking about. I'll tell you who my mother and brothers are, and that's the people sitting around here who are doing the will of God. I don't know about you, but I don't think my mother would appreciate that if I did that. Jesus is talking about a completely radical realignment of family around faith in him. And you read all this stuff, and you almost get the impression that faith is hard on families, that being a Christian makes it more difficult. You see, there's not one ideal family in the Bible. Every single family in Scripture had problems and conflicts. And that's the same as today with every one of us. If we, you know, strip off the kind, we're doing fine face and tell the truth, there are no perfect husbands, there are no perfect wives, there are no perfect parents, there are no perfect families. Dysfunctional family is redundant. We're all dysfunctional people. You put us together, it all multiplies. But here's the good news. If the heroic people of Scripture had family trouble and God could still use them, maybe our families don't have to be perfect for God to use us. I don't know about you, but that takes an incredible weight off of me. Now, that's no excuse for not being the best husband, wife, son, daughter, parent, aunt, uncle we can be. That's no excuse to be selfish and mistreat our families. It certainly gives us no reason to despair because our families struggle. It also means that we don't have any excuse to bail out on our marriage when it gets difficult because it's not making us happy. It gives us no excuse to be bitter against our parents because they didn't meet all of our needs. Well, guess what? Their parents didn't meet all theirs either. Welcome to the human race. See, faith in Jesus does not produce cookie-cutter perfect families. What it will do is give us the strength to endure the most difficult family situations with grace and love. God's grace touches all of our family failures, just like all of our other failures. And he can work through the most difficult family situations he always has. And the church can't offer any ministry to families out there that we don't need in here first. Because every problem out there, we got it in here. And so let's not pretend otherwise. Now, when we focus too much attention on the elusive ideal of family, we may create as many problems as we solve. I'm really worried that romanticizing family creates unrealistic expectations and undermines family. Talking about the ideal marriage can create more marital dissatisfaction. My wife and I went to a marriage seminar early in our marriage and we saw this great image of what our marriage can be and we both came away very unhappy about our marriage. I was thinking, you know what, if she'd straighten up, I could be having a lot more sex and she was thinking he should be treating me a whole lot better. We can set people up for disappointment, buying into some kind of Disney-esque image of happily ever after. We create unintentionally, I know. We're just trying to give people something good to strive for. But we can create this expectation that marriage is going to be a lifelong honeymoon filled with total intimacy and unabated romance and sexual fireworks. 
Well, it's just not so. And then the next thing, you know, we expect our spouse to be everything to us, to be our best friend, our passionate lover, our co-parent, our financial provider, to meet all of our needs and to make us happy. We expect intimate relationships with every child through every life stage. We expect our families to, and here's the killer, make us happy and meet our needs. But they won't do it. And they weren't designed to. See, it finally dawned on me somewhere along the line that God gave me my family to make me holy, not to make me happy. And that it is in my family that I run into my selfishness, my character flaws most pointedly, and I am most challenged to grow as a disciple of Jesus and to demonstrate a selfless love. And my family is the best place for me to learn how to be a follower of Jesus. My family isn't there to make me happy. They're there to help me grow as a disciple of Jesus. But we sometimes buy this myth that 50, 100 years ago, families didn't have problems like today. And it's just not true. Family sociologist William Good has written, like most stereotypes, that of the classic family of Western nostalgia leads us astray. When we penetrate the confusing myths in recent history, we find few examples of this classical family. True enough, divorce was rare, but we have no evidence that families were generally happy. Indeed, we find, as in so many other pictures of the glowing past, that each generation of people writes of a period still more remote, their grandparents' generation, when things were really much better. I I fear we've overly romanticized families of the past, but the reality is the good old days weren't so good. We just kept our problems quiet. And today's family problems exist because of yesterday's family problems. See, the problem with parents is they had parents. Now, my wife has tried to help our children understand this. And one of the things she has said to our children all the way through, and they're most of them grown now married, she said to them a lot, listen, our parents messed us up and we forgave them for it. And their parents messed them up, and they forgave them for it, and we're messing you up, and you're just going to have to forgive us for it. Welcome to life. And while Hollywood unjustly bashes traditional family, we're not doing anybody a favor if we deny family failures of the past and uncritically defend traditional family. For most of human history, especially in Bible times, People just didn't expect as much from their marriages and their families as we do today. And our families weren't designed to carry as much freight as we've loaded them with. The quest for intimacy and family didn't really begin until the 19th century, according to Edward Shorter. Before that, there was little privacy for sex. There was little time for leisure, family activities. People were just trying to survive. Marriages were arranged by parents for a whole lot of reasons, and romance and happiness were not on the list. Children were seen as financial assets. You wanted to have a bunch to help you work the farm or work the family business. Boy, we've turned that one around, haven't we? Just as fashion models can contribute to anorexia, idealization of family can lead to dissatisfaction based on exaggerated expectations nobody can meet. Some parents drive their children away expecting an unreasonable closeness and the kids have to get away not to be consumed. Other people keep getting remarried, leaving one and going looking for this elusive soulmate who will be everything they need to make them happy. 
doesn't really ever seem to work out. And the church can unintentionally create to these unrealistic expectations and increase trouble. See, the problem in our culture is not that we don't believe in marriage. We really believe in marriage. Our problem is we believe in fantasy marriage. And we're mad that our spouse isn't giving it to us. And I fear that many Christians expect our families to provide for us what only God can provide. Security, significance, wholeness, happiness. That comes from the Lord. If you've got it, you can share it and you can bless others with it. But your family can't deliver it. God can work through our families to bring us much good and much joy. And a family full of people following Jesus can be a delightful place to be. But our families are always flawed tools, even in God's hands. And if we look to our family as a source of security or meaning or joy or fulfillment, we will not be able to bear the truth about how flawed we are. We'll get trapped into some kind of denial and pretend game. And everybody will be playing a role. It will undercut our ability to really love our families because we're so focused on changing them to be some perfect image. And that just doesn't feel like love. And we can end up being angry and resentful that our family aren't more useful to meet our needs or increase our happiness. I learned this lesson the hard way years ago or began to learn it when after urging my wife to read this book about marriage and that book about marriage and wanted to go to this seminar or that seminar, she finally said to me in a moment of honest frustration, what if our marriage never gets any better than this? Are you ever going to love me for who I am? Only Only when we can accept the brokenness of our family can we really love them without being bitter that they aren't more perfect and aren't meeting all of our needs just as we aren't meeting all of theirs. I think about my grandparents' marriage, my Bouchel grandparents. After they died, I I began to wonder, did they have a good marriage? And it kind of all depends on how you measure. If you were to have asked them, they would have said, well, of course we have a good marriage. We were married for 58 years. We took care of each other until death. Raised three godly children, all have Christian homes. All of our grandchildren are baptized believers in Jesus. They loved each other the best way they knew how, right up to the grave. But I can tell you, somebody who's pretty close to them, that by many marriage, their or many standards, their marriage had a lot of problems. They did not meet each other's emotional needs. My granddad didn't know he had any, and he certainly didn't know that my grandmother had any. My grandmother had deep, deep deep-seated family issues, raised with an alcoholic family, probably bipolar, disappeared for months at a time. They lived on the edge of starvation a lot of the time. She had all kinds of issues, but she never talked about it, and I only found about it through other relatives because she was always presenting the ideal of the perfect dad that she had in her mind. Made her terribly scared that her husband, my grandfather, was going to leave her. A lot of insecurity, a lot of fear. It came out on all kinds of fussing. They argued about all kinds of stuff, principally the thermostat, but everything really. (laughs) Toward the end of his life, my granddad got to where he would confide in me when I would go home and see things that he wouldn't tell my father because just there was just so much emotional 
wait there to deal with. He would tell me stuff. Say, she's killing me. Your grandmother's killing me. And she had issues. She had health issues. She had, she was hard to live with at that point. But when he died, and we rolled her wheelchair up to his coffin at the graveside, and she looked over at him and she said, Oh, Pat, oh, Pat, how will I ever live without you? And she meant it. And after he was gone and she was struggling with dementia, she would talk to him and he was a part of her every waking moment and they were inseparable. 58 years of struggle. They never considered divorce. Murder, okay, but divorce, no, no. Now here's the deal. I want a better marriage than they had. I think it's possible to have a better marriage than they had. I think there are resources to help us have a better marriage than they had. But I sure want my marriage to do what theirs did. You see, in the end, following Jesus is about more than our relationship to family. It's about our relationship to God. Sure, it affects how we treat other people. Sure, it transforms our families. Yeah, it's going to make you a better husband, make you a better wife, make you better parents. But focusing on marriage and parenting skills is cosmetic. Focusing on being like Jesus is what will really make us better spouses, parents, children. Because that affects the core of who we are. And sometimes it's going to call you to things that are going to put you in conflict with your family. They're going to feel like you hate them. And if we want to connect to people out there in the world and we want to connect them to Jesus, starting with family hurts is a good place to start because you can be sure of this. No matter who you run into, they came from a family, they have a family, and it hurts. Married or single, everybody has family issues. Building a church vision around that can be a great way to go. But we only help people if what we give them is Jesus. Not a recipe for some idealistic ideal of American nuclear family. And while sometimes we need to tell people, your family needs to be more important, at other times we need to tell them that loving their family means putting Jesus first and taking the pressure off of their family to provide them what only Jesus can give them. Family's important. We need to minister to families. But our primary commitment, love, and emotional support must come from God. So as we focus on family, let's be careful we don't turn an ideal into an idol. And ironically, the best thing you can do for your family is not to put your family first, but to put Jesus first and then put your family in its proper place. Let me tell you something. You do your work right to the glory of God, and you're not going to hurt for business, man. You see, they're going to talk about